The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. Adventure has its own style. It's made of tall trees, unpaved trails, and at the center, the most capable Subaru Forester yet, the 2024 Subaru Forester Wilderness. It comes with 9.2 inches of ground clearance paired with standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and advanced dual-function X mode. Discover adventure on a deeper level, the 2024 Subaru Forester Wilderness. To explore all you can do with the rugged Subaru Wilderness family of vehicles, visit Subaru.com wilderness. Almost every society has to try to find a way to control the chaos that is drunkenness. And that's one of the things that fascinated me is that alcohol is a drunkenness is by its nature anarchic. So how does society fit this anarchism somewhere into its its centre. That was Mark Forsyth discussing drunkenness through history. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Today's interview is with the author Mark Forsyth, whose most recent book is A Short History of Drunkenness which, as the title suggests, explores humanity's relationship with alcohol over several thousand years. He spoke to our staff writer, Ellie Cawthorn. 
So, Mark, your new book takes us on a roller coaster ride through the history of drunkenness, um, from prehistory right through to prohibition. Why did you want to take on this topic? Um, well, I was. It's, the truth is, I was trying to think up a subject for a new book, and I couldn't think of one. So I, I sat there and having a drink and trying to think of a subject, and then I had another drink and another drink, and suddenly it it, it came to me. But it's also it's it's what I love doing is taking things which we feel are normal, eternal, the world must have always been like this, and to look at them and anew and say, has it always been like this? We assume that the rules that apply to our drinking have always applied. They must be the eternal rules of life. You know, we um, in Britain today, you would tend to, if you get drunk, get drunk on a Friday night. You wouldn't get drunk on, you know, a Sunday morning which is actually what medieval England would do. Sunday morning was the proper time to, to uh, go to the alehouse and, and get lathered. Or, um, yes, well, why do we drink in the evenings? Why do we drink at these particular times of day? Why do we choose to drink with particular people where, say, in Aztec society, only old people were allowed to get drunk usually? Why do we have these these rules and how have these rules been different at other times? Did these what were the rules of drinking in Mesopotamian society, ancient ancient Egypt, the Aztec world, ancient China, etc.? So you mentioned there a couple of examples of rules being different. Um, can you give us some more um, and the different kind of forms that drinking has taken over time? Because it's not always been about partying or having a good time or socialising, has it? It's been about almost everything. So, for example, I mean, one which we've utterly lost is um, religious drinking. People used to drink in order to uh, have a spiritual experience. I mean, when I say people used to, the ancient Egyptians did this. Um, They had the Festival of Drunkenness, which is a wonderful – I I loved researching the Festival of Drunkenness. It was uh, essentially – uh, once a year, possibly twice a year, and I was quite sure on this, you, uh, the ancient Egyptians would get massively drunk in the temple of Hathor, so drunk that they vomited, and then they would drink more until they vomited again, and then drink more and more and more. This was the hardest core drinking I've ever found in history, um, until eventually, after a bit of a, um, a drunken orgy, frankly, they, you would fall asleep in the very early hours of the, um, the morning. Um, and then you, whilst you were asleep, um, the priests would uh, wheel in essentially a great big statue of the goddess Hathor. And at dawn, they would wake everybody up by um, shouting and screaming and banging drums and everything. And everyone, I don't know if you've ever been woken up while you're still drunk, but it's a very weird, disorientating feeling. And you would wake up and suddenly see this massive statue of the goddess there in the dawn light. And that was meant to give you contact with the deity and um, produce a, a wonderful religious experience. So apparently it was amazing. I'm not sure I want to try it necessarily, but uh, but religious drinking is something we've lost, even though in ancient China you would drink until you could um, uh, make contact with the spirits of your ancestors. And indeed there's a, a tribe in um, – an indigenous tribe in Ecuador where they believe that the um, the vomit produced by drunkenness – when you throw up onto the ground, feeds the spirits of your ancestors, but only the vomit induced by drunkenness, which is a an interesting one. And what about the drinks themselves? What have been some of history's most popular drinks or most unusual drinks? Uh, well, there have been. Uh, we start out with basically um, 
alcohol is just uh, rotting fruit. But you start out with uh, beer, which is the almost universal one, which you find traces of going back for thousands of years. Um, and then wine, which is even easier to make from beer, but you have to have grapes and mead. And that's the big triad for a very long time. There were no spirits. And it's, it's strange to think of a world without spirits. You know, it's very strange to think of Russia without vodka, but such a thing did exist. Or Scotland without whiskey, for that matter. Um, the Some of the weirdest drinks I found were actually in the Wild West, where uh, – it was very, very hard to transport um, proper alcohol across a vast um, uh, continent where there weren't proper railroads, etc., no proper transportation. And so people would um, fake alcohol. If you just started with some raw spirits and then add a little bit of uh, uh, sulfuric acid for a kick, creosote, I found a, a recipe for fake whiskey from about 1850, I think it was, which actually contained a few drops of creosote. And then you, you'd add in various other stuff to make it look like whiskey and maybe vaguely taste like that. But the, the term rot gut was, <laughs> I think, really appropriate for this. So here, for example, is, is a recipe for fake whiskey from the um, mid-19th century in America, which goes, neutral spirit, four gallons. Alcoholic solution of starch, one gallon. Decoction of tea, one pint. Infusion of almonds, one pint. Color with one ounce of a tincture of cochineal and of burnt sugar, four ounces. Flavor with oil of wintergreen, three drops, dissolved in one ounce of alcohol. And that, that, that using sulfuric acid to create a kick actually um, was also around in the London gin craze in the early 18th century when people would put any old rubbish into um, uh, gin. And huge numbers of people just dropped down dead drinking it for reasons quite explicable when you look at the actual recipes. God, it sounds dreadful. It was really pretty dreadful, yes. I also enjoyed um, hearing about how at many points alcohol was, it was not kind of an event drink. It was an everyday drink almost that added to your sustenance given by food. Yeah. Well, beer is actually more nutritious than bread, by which I mean, if you've got um, a pile of barley and you um, want to get the most calories out of it, then you should make beer and not bread. Beer also contains vitamins. It's got vitamin B, which is very important. There's a, there's a theory that um, beer was actually invented before bread was. But uh, uh, yes, it's, it's liquid bread. It's got loads of calories in it. People uh, throughout most of history, water's been pretty dodgy, but the alcohol basically sterilizes um, uh, beer, which means that it's always been better to drink beer than water. And there's, I mean, the one I kept coming back to is uh, uh, Alfred, an Anglo-Saxon guy from the late first millennium AD, who said, um, beer if I have it, water if I have no beer. And people used to drink everybody, prior to the 19th century, everybody drank all day. And by everybody, I mean um, men, women, and children. By all day, I mean with breakfast, breakfast onwards. Um, uh, so, I mean, even and even in the 19th century, it was still going on. David Copperfield, he um, there's a bit where he recalls, you know, drinking beer aged eight. And it's not a strange or marvelous thing. That's just how life was. You would, you know, give your children some beer for breakfast and then send them off to school. Um so that's that's one of the the big changes. The reason we now in the West have pushed 
drinking into the an evening slot is actually well it's um the evil um victorian factory owners who wanted their workforce to be completely sober because when you're operating um you know heavy dangerous machinery you probably shouldn't have a few drinks inside you um, and so the the, the the whole temperance movement and pushing us into drinking only in the evenings and the weekends is a Victorian invention. Uh, prior to that, if, you, if, you're, if you're a farmer, you can get away with, you know, just a beer for breakfast, beer, beer mid-morning, beer at lunch. There's huge amounts of it around. But it wasn't just the Victorians who introduced a kind of condemnation of drinking, was it? You mentioned um, that the Aztecs had a very complicated relationship with attitudes <laughs> to alcohol. A very, very complex relationship. The, the Aztecs were an odd people. So the Aztecs had uh, a drink called pulque, which is essentially um, beer, the same sort of thing. It's, it's a sort of a white, milky um, drink, but it's, it's it's the same sort of thing, um, and uh, they they had uh, punishments for drunkenness, uh, which were very very severe for public drunkenness. If uh, there, there's a quote that if a drunk man showed himself in public, or if he were caught drinking, or if he were found speechless in the street, or if he wandered about singing or in the company of other drunkards, he was punished. If he were a plebeian, by being beaten to death, or else he was strangled before the young men of the district by way of an example, and to make them shun drunkenness. If the drunkard were noble, he was strangled in private. Now, I, 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 it's, it seems a, a strange little benefit in life to be strangled in private, but there we are. Um, and they had a very, very troubled relationship with alcohol, which involved, as I say, the death penalty for drunkenness. But then it seems drinking at times of religious festivals, possibly for religious reasons. The problem for the Aztecs, um, the successors of the Aztecs, was when the Spanish came in, they destroyed the religious calendar and they created such social chaos that alcoholism really did um, take off in Central America to such an extent that a lot of the um, the Spanish priests who were there doing the converting actually thought that the devil was inducing alcoholism in order to try and stop these people becoming Christians. So really, there's always been quite a complex line between um, alcohol connected with religion in a positive way and also, you know, seen as the work of the devil. Yes, it's it's all over the place. And uh, forwards and backwards. Every society has tried, or almost every society has to try to find a way to control the uh, the chaos that is drunkenness. And that's one of the things that fascinated me is that alcohol is a uh, drunkenness is by its nature anarchic. So how does society fit this anarchism somewhere into its its centre? And almost every society has tried to do that, whether by banning it or by relegating it to specific times or specific people. An awful lot of um, societies ban women from drinking, for example. It's a nice, easy thing to, to ban. Um, and it's, it's very rarely that you get a society with no caveats on drinking. I think um, the Norse or Viking society was was one. And in, interesting, almost almost every polytheistic society has a god of drunkenness who is a junior god like Bacchus or Dionysus or um, Hathor in Egypt or Ninkasi in um, ancient Mesopotamia. But in, um, in Viking uh, uh, pantheon, Odin was drunk all the time. Odin made a point of never drinking anything other than wine. Odin didn't even eat any food. 
he just survived on wine. And his name means the frenzied one and probably just the drunk one. So Viking Society is the only one I uh, that I came across where drinking is uh, the province of the major god, the senior god, and also then permeated every aspect of Viking life. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. You mentioned about um, societies having to deal with drunkenness as a form of anarchy. And one thing, uh, one kind of time when drunkenness was really at the forefront of public concern was the was the gin craze in 18th century England. Can you tell us a bit about that? The gin craze is fascinating, partially because it's the first um, drugs panic in a lot of ways. Um, distillation had become um, swept over Europe in the 17th century, but um, uh, London and Britain was kind of late with getting to it. But when gin arrived, the problem was we had this new drink and it wasn't socialized yet. We didn't have rules about when and where you could drink gin and how much gin you could drink. We had we were still operating with the rules of beer, which in those days was something along the lines of, you know, a pint with breakfast, a pint mid-morning. But um, you take that and apply that to gin and things go horribly, horribly wrong, which they did. And the uh, government got into horrible panic. People were getting addicted to gin. People were dying of drinking way too much gin, which happens if you drink a pint for breakfast. And People were selling everything they have. There's a famous Hogarth print, but an awful lot of people were selling their clothes to buy drink and to buy gin. There was one notorious case of a woman who killed her own daughter and sold her daughter's clothes to buy gin. And it was it was a terrible moral panic and a question of how do we ban this? And the government tried to ban it by force for a while. Didn't work. People just found ways around the law. There were riots. There was nearly revolution. One of the funny things about it is that it's always been the case, an absolute um, rule of history, is that it's fine for rich people to get drunk. But when poor people get drunk, um, the powers that be get 
um, very, very worried. And this was a classic case, and actually something came up in that the gin craze was the gin was the drink of the poor and also the drink of women, actually. Um, but uh, the, the rich at the time were drinking spirits, but they were drinking brandy and drinking an awful lot of brandy. But nobody ever suggested banning um, brandy or taxing brandy, but gin was the cause celebre of how, how do we get rid of this? And there was a a terrible and very long fight between uh, the government, which was also, of course, I mean, another eternal point of, well, governments is that they love the taxation that they get from, um, you know, sin taxes, uh, by by which I mean taxes on pleasurable products. Governments today love the tax revenues they get from tobacco, but they're also trying to ban tobacco. It's a, you know, uh, it's a strange paradox of society. And um, uh, the, the gin craze was exactly like that as we tried to fund wars with the um, tax on gin and at the same time tried to ban people from drinking gin. <laughs> um, an interesting strand which I think you picked up on there was um, concerns about women drinking. You also have quite an interesting kind of gender take on the prohibition in America, uh, if you could explain a bit more about that. Prohibition was entirely the idea of women, um, pretty much. I mean, that, that, that's, that sounds like such a blanket statement, but it, it's kind of true. Uh, there, prohibition wasn't actually about alcohol, which again sounds like a strange statement. Prohibition was about saloons and saloon culture. Uh, the idea was whether this is his, whether this is factually true is um, almost irrelevant. Culturally, what people believed in uh, late 19th century America was that men would get paid on a Friday, go to the saloon, spend all their money on booze, come home and beat their wives. That was the great social worry of late 19th century America. And it's that that led to prohibition. If you see what I mean, you could be um, happily in favor of drinking, but also believe that prohibition was a good thing because it stopped um, the violence in the saloon culture that went with drinking that was an inevitable part. So you could be um, what was called a drinking dry, which actually makes sense. If you, the best way I, I can think of explaining this is um, if you think about football hooliganism and its relationship to football, you can be very much against football hooliganism whilst being fine with football being played as a game. Um, but you might therefore decide to ban professional football in order to stamp out football hooliganism. Similarly, the main aim of prohibition was not to stamp out drinking. It was to stamp out the concomitant violence and the um, especially domestic violence, which was seen to go along with drinking. So it was, it was very much a, um, a women's uh, cause. And one of the actually the the first great cause where women came out into public discourse in in America, and then one of the strange things is that from that point of view, it worked. Um, prohibition, because everyone thinks prohibition didn't work, but in a sense it did. Prohibition shut down the saloons, and it was always the saloons that were seen as the problem. And then people had to drink in a different way. They had to move into speakeasies famously. But the funny thing about speakeasies is speakeasies allowed women in, in a way that saloons never did. I mean, saloons did contain some women, but they were, um, how should I put this, professional women. Um, 
Whereas speakeasies, there you had these young, fashionable flapper girls would go along to a speakeasy. And so it changed the whole culture of American drinking from being a violent male, uh, male-only practice to being this fun thing that women could get involved in as well. Therefore, if you were one of the people who in you know, 1917 was pushing for prohibition, then at the time of repeal, you'd probably feel you'd had a victory. You know, we've done what prohibition has done what we wanted it to do. It's got rid of the um, the uh, the violent saloons and replaced them with the rather fun speakeasies. Picking up on the violent saloons, I really enjoyed the um, quote about saloons being a place where a rattlesnake wouldn't take its mother. Um, <laughs> yes. But I was quite disappointed to hear that maybe Wild West saloons um, were not really as the movies have portrayed them. Um. They were and they weren't. In some ways, very much not. Uh, the, you know, the bat wing doors, those famous swinging doors you see in every single Western basically didn't exist, which is a bit of a shame. Um, but in fact, there, there was one detail that I absolutely loved uh, uh, finding out, turning up, which is that scene in a Western, you know, you know, when Clint Eastwood goes into the saloon, orders a drink, Barman gives him one and he just tosses a coin on the counter. And he never asks, how much was that? And Barman says, oh, that's so many cents and you know, gets change or anything. It's always just toss a coin on the counter. That is absolutely historically accurate because the way it worked was uh, you would have a two-bit saloon and a four-bit saloon in each town usually. Um, well, in fact, you'd have many saloons. But a, if you went into a two-bit saloon, every drink, no matter what, cost two bits. And these were the down market saloons. And if you went to a four bit saloon, every drink, no matter what, would cost four bits. So you never needed to ask the price. It was like a sort of pound store, as it were. Yeah. So it's absolutely accurate that Clint Eastwood would never need to ask the price or get change or anything like that. And you knew when you walked in whether this was a two-bit saloon, the really rough and ready sawdust on the floor place, or a four-bit saloon, which probably had, you know, a pianola and a floor show and um, stuff like that and some nice decorations. And uh, and that, that phrase actually, of course, still survives in, the, uh, in America. You can still say this is, you know, some two-bit town, meaning this is the down market version. The four-bit town would be the up market version. So who are some of the famous faces that merit a mention in the history of drunkenness? There are lots of fascinating people in their history of drunkenness. Um, I did quite a lot on Stalin, who used drunkenness as a form of control over his Politburo. He would summon them to his house and essentially force them to drink and humiliate themselves in front of him. And that's actually part of a tradition that goes back a long way, the notion of the man of authority will drink a lot without getting drunk, which if you stop and think about it, is a, a strange idea. It was. It starts, the earliest one I could find was Socrates. And Socrates, one of the, re, uh, according to the symposium, one of the reasons Socrates was, you could tell Socrates was a great man because he could drink all night and still be stone cold sober. And uh, this is still something people are proud of today. You know, someone to say, I'm a real man, you know, I can drink 10 pints, doesn't affect me at all. Which if you think about it, it's very strange. Nobody would say, oh, yes, it's wonderful. I, I can take LSD and never hallucinate. Or <laughs> I can take coffee, but I never wake up. 
you know, what, why would you not want the alcohol to affect you? In that case, what's the point in drinking the alcohol? But this is, is something that runs through Confucius, oddly enough, in ancient China, had exactly the same, th- same thing said about him, that he drank a lot of wine but never got drunk. And this has always been the, the, the male in charge of society should be able to hold his drink. That was Mark Forsyth. A Short History of Drunkenness is out now in the UK, published by Viking. And in the US, it will be published next spring by Three Rivers Press. Now, just before we go, here's a reminder that our York History Weekend is now just a couple of weeks away, and that tickets for some talks are still available. Head to historyweekend.com for more details and to purchase tickets. Well, that's about it for today, but please do join us on Thursday for more from the world of history. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.